a break from our series in the book of Acts. Um, the next section of that is a, a long sermon by uh, Stephen, and so we're going to save that for the weeks to come, but we're going to spend uh, this morning looking at a, sp- a, a different uh, issue altogether out of Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. So... Um, I'm going to ask us, uh, before we read this text, uh, three questions, and I'm guessing that at least two out of the three you have asked yourself, and we'll see if I'm accurate or not. Um, The first question is this, how do I make sure that my life is not a waste? (laughs) Ever asked that question of yourself? You had that gnawing sense of kind of, you're spending your life in, in a frivolous way? How do we live wisely? That's, that's the first one. How do I make sure that my life is not a waste? Number two, what is God's will? Ever felt like you're in the dark on uh, something? And it's not that you expect you know, text messages from heaven or anything, but uh, you'd be glad just for some general... No mic? Here we go. Number three... I'll talk loud. What is it like to be filled by the Holy Spirit? What is it like to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you know someone who is uh, really mature and they just, they seem like they're living with God-given convictions, they're attuned to the spiritual realm, they're keeping in step with the Spirit, and you just wonder sometimes, how does, how does that happen? You know, how does a person do that in practice? So how do I make sure my life is not a waste? Kind of a morbid question, but uh, number two, what is God's will? And three, what is it like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you asked those questions or wondered those questions to yourself? If you're like me, I bet you have. Now, our, our text this morning is going to address all three of those questions, not exhaustively. It's not going to tell us exactly how to consider all of those questions, but it is going to hit all of them. And in fact, our text says that already by this time in the service, we have already, in a sense, lived purposefully and done God's will and, for the most part, been operating under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Already that's happened. Now, you might be surprised to hear that, but one of the um, wonderful and unexpected things about the Christian life is how God grows his children how he does that. God does supernatural work through ordinary means. God does supernatural work through ordinary means. So all growth as a Christian is miraculous, but not all the means by which he does that feel super spectacular and out of the ordinary. Sometimes we think that spiritual maturity is accomplished by taking a kind of journey like Dr. Strange does, where you you go through all these levels of reality and have these monastic moments and this kind of, kind of vague, fuzzy stuff. But then you, get, you become a Christian and you find that a lot of the time it's just ordinary, straightforward stuff that actually does it. That's how God grows us, through ordinary means. So how do ordinary followers of Christ, people like you and me, how do we live carefully? How do we submit ourselves to God's will? How are we filled by the Holy Spirit? And how do we do that as a church? That's the question we'll be answering this morning out of Ephesians chapter 5. Why don't you stand if you're able 
And I'm going to read for us out of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Here's what God's word says. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Here's where I'm going this morning. Here's the point. Meeting and singing with the church is one way that the Holy Spirit helps Christ's body to live carefully for the will of God. Meeting and singing with the church is one way that the Holy Spirit helps Christ's body to live carefully for the will of God. Our outline this morning is simple. There's three points, and then we'll talk about some implications for our church. First, what's Paul's main point in this text, which is to live carefully and wisely. Second, he talks about two different kinds of influence that we can be under. And third, we're going to hear what a spirit-filled church sounds like. And we'll talk about what that means for us as a, as a church family. So first, his main point. What is he after? Well, our little paragraph uh, is in the middle uh, of a context. Okay, There's stuff before it and after it. And so it's important to know when you study the Bible the context of a passage. And so Paul has painted this incredible picture of, of how we're now in Christ. And how by being in Christ, God has actually joined Jew and Gentile together in this plan that's uniting all things in Christ over time. This beautiful doctrine that you probably have looked at Ephesians, you've probably read it. It starts off with Paul blessing God in, in a worship in verse 3 of chapter 1. But then in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul turns a corner to take all this knowledge and all this learning and to now start to get it and feed it into our actual lives when he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And now he's going to be talking about for the next three chapters how to live out the doctrine that he's taught. And he uses this language of walking over and over again, just to let you know he's still talking about that. So in chapter 5, in verse 2, he says, And walk in love. In our passage, in the, in the very first verse, look carefully then how you walk. By that he means how you live your life, how you actually play this out. In chapter 5, right before our, our passage, in verses 3 through 14, Paul's been contrasting the sons of darkness with the children of light, is what he says and showing just how big of a difference there should be between the two groups. Not because one is better than the other, but because one has had their eyes open to the beauty of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is now changing them. And so it's this kind of contrast of darkness and light. And that helps us to know why it is in verse 15 that he starts off saying, look carefully then how you walk. It's kind of in this setting of, of uh, this contrast between darkness and light, like I said. So it's a, it's a sobering scene. It's a, it's a serious scene. And this idea of looking carefully how you walk is going to guide the rest of his letter. 
So look carefully how you walk in the church, verses 15 through 21. Be careful how you live in your marriage, in verses 22 through the end of chapter 5. Be careful how you live as a parent, and how you live in your work and as your vocation. Be careful how you walk, and consider the spiritual realm in chapter 6. So he explains, be careful how you walk, but what does he mean by that? Look carefully then how you live. Well, what do you mean? In our passage, he gives us two different things. First, he says, not as unwise, but as wise. Not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is living skillfully in the fear of God. It's not just intellectual, you rattle off the the right doctrinal answers to the questions. It's knowing how to take God's word and what he says and your life and help them to meet over and over again. That's wisdom. That's skillful living. And God is the the reference point of wisdom, which is why it's impossible to be wise without knowing that there's a God who owns this place and who made you and designed things to work a certain way. But there are degrees of wisdom, aren't there? I mean, Christians can be very foolish. I can personally attest to that, right? There's degrees of this. And so there's this ability to discern what God desires. The text in verse 17 seems to think that we can actually know what the will of the Lord is. Did you see that? When it says, therefore don't be foolish, what's the opposite of that? Wisdom, which is what? To understand what the will of the Lord is. There's a way to discern that. But it's a process, right, of applying what does God say to my actual life? And that's why in Romans 12, 2, it says when we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, it says so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. It's a process of applying wisdom to understand how we can grow. But it's encouraging, isn't it, to know that we can know the will of the Lord? Like it, it, he's saying that, expecting that we'll know that. So that's the first way that we're to walk carefully. We're to walk in wisdom, not folly. But he says, as the second point, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This literally means redeeming the time or buying it back from the dumb ways you would have spent it if you hadn't known Jesus. Not just spending your life frivolously, but spending your life well. John Piper tells a story that... um, I loved, he, he, he recounts the story of finding a uh, disturbing retirement pamphlet. And on this retirement pamphlet, there was this elderly couple, you know, all smiles, no health problems, walking side by side, hand in hand on a beach somewhere, which is somehow, everyone, everyone always ends up on the beach. I don't know how that works. But, and in this pamphlet, it promised the time to collect seashells. That was the marketing angle. And that, that sounds fine and good. It might sound really attractive to you right now. But John talked about what the implications of that would be when facing the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, we took time to gather these shells. Here are our shells as an offering to you. Now, I'm not against retirement, okay? (laughs) 
but time is short. And we need to make the best use of it that we can. If it's true that we live in an evil age and that life is staggeringly significant, that we must spend our days well and carefully. See, the context of this command really matters. If I told you to come up here and stand right there and walk to the end of the room, you know, and just show us how to do that, you might think, okay, I could do that. But if I changed the environment and said, you're, you're at the edge of a minefield and there's an enemy that's pressing in, and I want you to go from here to there. That would be a very different kind of walk, wouldn't it? Because of the significance, the context, the environment changes the degree of care that you take to do that. And when Paul is saying, look, the days are evil. Time is short. He's saying, walk wisely. Live carefully. Spend your life on what matters. So that's Paul's point. Don't blow the wad of your life on frivolous things that don't matter. And that's what he goes on to say. And we could see how this would play out, uh, for example, uh, in, the, in the, like, the areas that he talks about. So if I were able to, to think and be conscious and be careful with my marriage, if I was constantly aware that what I'm doing with my wife is an illustration how, of how Christ interacts with his church, and I was aware of that all the time, and I lived with that kind of consideration and that thought, I would live differently in my marriage. If I was a parent and I was aware of the sacred obligation of raising a generation for the glory of Christ to come and to shoot those arrows into the culture to make an impact for the glory, if I was aware of that all the time, I would probably parent differently. If I was aware that serving Christ in my workplace is possible, I'm not just serving my boss, I'm not just making a paycheck, this matters, I would live differently. But how are we to live carefully in the church? How do we do that? How do we walk wisely in the church? Well, he goes on and explains, and starting in verse 18, in our second point, under whose influence, about these two influences that are there. He clarifies whose influence we're to be under, right? He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. He's clearly contrasting two types of influence. And choosing to put yourself under the influence of alcohol is something that characterized probably a lot of these believers before becoming Christians. There are all kinds of cult temples and all kinds of things where, uh, lo and behold, the way they worshipped was by uh, getting hammered and then having sex. That was like, that's like man's like religion, right? And that was literally going on in the place that they lived. And so uh, there's this contrast of the way that, the way that you were under an influence before with now uh, whose, influ- whose influence you're under uh, in Christ. Debauchery is basically a word, we don't use that a lot, right? It's a, it's a word to describe the place where that happened, these wild parties that would happen, um, where this getting drunk would take place. And it's, it's true that, that getting drunk is a, is a bad idea. It's a poor use of time. But I think one of, the, one of the interesting things about this text is, I think Paul could even ask the question like this, why numb your mind and detach from reality when there are such stunning and significant things to think about and do. 
He's just thinking, oh, wine's bad and too much wine. That's, that's not it, right? Drunkenness is a concession. It's, it's living a life in a, in a muted way, in a way that's shortened by what's possible, what's potential. Living for the glory of Christ, living for significant and eternal things, that matters. And so in contrast to being under the influence of alcohol, he says followers of Christ are to be operating under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, thinking hats have to go on for the next three minutes, okay? Just warning you, because we have to ask this question. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We're going to do a little work here, okay? Because you come across a phrase like that, you've got to kind of take it apart and figure out how it works. So the first thing we can do is say, okay, well, what does he mean by being filled with the Spirit? Is it like filling my gas tank? Is it like what happens to the Incredible Hulk? Is it, is it like catching a flu bug? Is it being overcome with emotion? Like, what does he mean by being filled with the Spirit? So first question we can ask is, what has Paul told us already about the Holy Spirit? Look in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, In him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit secures and seals and ensures that the gospel seed that's planted in believers grows to maturity. And so one thing we can take off the table, knowing that that's how Paul describes the Spirit, is that he's saying, well, be full of the Spirit because you might be empty. And he'll kind of come and he'll kind of go and in and out, and that's not what Paul is saying when he says be full of the Spirit. Okay, it's not like, well, Tuesday I hope he shows up, and then Thursday, well, he might be gone. Oh no, and you're kind of wondering, when is the Spirit going to come? That's not what he's saying. So that helps us to see how the Spirit's been at work. Number two way that we can kind of break this down is too often we read the Bible with individualistic lenses on. So when you read, uh, be filled with the Spirit, you might think, well, I need to personally, individually be filled with the Spirit. But look what it says. When it starts talking about what that would look like in verse 19, it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's an example or a picture of what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And guess what? There's more than one person in that description. Which means that being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's talking about a church being filled with the Spirit. Not necessarily individuals. And that's a little different than we might have thought. So what does it mean for the church to be filled with the Spirit? Now, we're almost there. Okay, We're about halfway through. Something else that complicates this is a little Greek word called en. And that's the word between what being filled and the Spirit is. So, and this little word en could mean for, it can mean by, it can mean through, it can mean which, it can mean in the realm of, or for the reason that. It's like one of the most elastic words in Greek, which means we have to figure out what does it mean to be filled en, the Spirit. That's a, a, the environment of the text has to decide and tell us what we do. So, we have to look at what this idea of filling is doing in the letter of Ephesians, and that's going to help us a lot. Look at chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. 
Paul, at the end of a prayer, says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills, same word, all in all. Chapter 3, verse 19, at the end of another prayer, he prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 13, it says, talking about building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. One last one. Look in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. This is talking about the building of the church, the metaphorical building. It says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Filling or being filled in the letter of Ephesians is what God is supplying the person of Christ to the church so that the church can mature. That's what being filled in Ephesians means. So that means what he's saying is to be filled by the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit is the agent by which God gives grace to the church so that she grows in Christ's likeness. Does that make sense? The Spirit is the agent by which God the Father gives us the Son and gives us the character of the Son so that we become and we are filled up or made full or made mature. Okay, that's what that means. So, in the same way um, that a godless person in the context of those parties would allow themselves to be controlled by alcohol, so the church is in this environment of being built into this temple by the Holy Spirit. We allow ourselves to be filled with God, with the fullness of Christ, and the Holy Spirit's the one who does that. Okay? Is that clear? Did you come through that with me? Nod your head if you came through that with me. If you're not, we can talk afterwards, okay? It's a little, it's a, but it's, it matters, right? To be, we could just say be filled with the Spirit, and what could that mean? Some people, you know, it's like indigestion, and other people mean it's being told right or left, and other people, it, it could mean anything, but we have to root it in what the rest of this letter is saying. So, where are we? we we've got to live carefully, right? We've got to walk carefully, because it matters. How do, we, how do we walk carefully as a church? Well, we have to walk in the fullness provided by the Holy Spirit as we're made mature in Christ. Well, how do we do that? Now, what do you expect him to say here? The days are evil, and you need the fullness of the Spirit, so keep an eye on the doctrine. The days are evil, and you need the Spirit, so preserve the unity. Keep, keep the unity there. Get the false teachers out of there. You don't almost expect him to say that. But what does he say is evidence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? The days are evil. Be full of the Spirit. So sing. Sing is what he tells us to do. Huh. Okay. I, mean, I, I can sing. 
is that, is that really? Is it all that serious? I mean, we're talking about minefields. We're talking about, and this is, this is, this is not what you expect to hear. Sing, he says. What does a spirit-filled church sound like? Well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with words. You'll notice in chapter 4, the way you grieve the Spirit is by saying words that are bitter and have malice in them and they clamor and they're unkind. They're corrupting talk that doesn't give grace to those who hear. That's what grieves the Holy Spirit. The opposite of that are words that build up, that instruct, that encourage, that bring life to people when they come in to our church and they're coming in from a hundred different places and we're singing together in Christ alone. Great is thy faithfulness. Never once did we ever walk alone. I have 10,000 reasons to sing until I'm dead. I'll never run out of reasons to praise God. And we say those things, we confess those things to one another, and the Holy Spirit uses that to mature us and protect us and help us through singing. Singing matters. If you took the words that Paul says, live carefully, so sing. Be wise, sing. Make the best use of the time, sing. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Sing. Be filled with the Spirit. I've had people tell me, singing is so inefficient. I could say the lyrics of that song ten times before we're done singing that song. And there are some who just tolerate the musical part, right? I, I know I've talked with those people who come five minutes before the sermon and then they leave after the sermon because they don't get it. They don't get why music's important. Paul is saying that congregational singing is one of the ways that the Spirit of God helps us to commune with Him. And that just escalates its importance much, much higher than we might, might think. It's a way that He works on us. It's a way that we can please Him. I would say to that person who says that singing is so inefficient, I realize I'm, I'm coming from a background that loves music and I, I enjoy playing music and so I get that I'm a, I'm a little bit biased in that, okay? So I've got to kind of step back from that. But I would say, think of all the ways that music makes impressions on you that teaching doesn't. I mean, if we're honest, a lot of you get more out of the things that we sing about than the things that are preached. Sometimes that happens, okay? And as a, as a preacher, I'm going to admit that. Say, that's okay, right? That's a good thing. Some historians argue about this stuff, whether Martin Luther's impact was greater because of what he taught or because of the songs he wrote. Same with the Wesley brothers. Singing matters. One author says that songs reach the inner corridors of our soul in a way that other things cannot. And you know that to be true, right? You hear a song and you're transported back to that hospital lobby. I remember driving away from L.A. from this life that we had loved because we were convinced God wanted us in the North Bay and listening to those songs, which spoiled them forever, right? <laughs> but you, you know what that's like to be transported. 
our kids are singing songs and singing scripture now in our church. And I remember, and I've memorized Colossians 3, 2 through 3, just because I organized getting that song together for the kids. It's fantastic. I recently heard the story of a man in his 40s who was visiting his grandmother who had Alzheimer's. She was, I think, 94. And he walked in the room, and although she couldn't even remember her children's or grandchildren's names, she couldn't read. She could still sing the alto part of every hymn in the hymnal. She still had this treasury of songs that she could pull from and lean on and rely on and be instructed by. And sing, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. How precious was the ministry of the church that she was a part of that gave her the resources and the the armory to use on a day like that. Singing matters. What are some implications of this for us as a church? I could talk about why singing matters all day long, and I'll stop. So some implications, okay? Four we sing statements. Number one, we sing to teach each other. Kellen mentioned this when we were getting ready and started off our service. It says, you'll notice the text says in verse 19, addressing one another. In the Colossians version of this, it says teaching and admonishing one another. Music is a God-intended way to instruct us and to to stir godly emotions in us and to teach us things. Do you remember what the Lord said to Moses when he was about to die? God says, Israel's going to be faithless. And so he he says, starting in Deuteronomy 31.19, here's what instructions he gives to Moses. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. He goes on about how they're going to disobey. And then he says, And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. Ready for the parenthetical statement? I love this. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. What does God do to help Israel remember? He teaches their kids a song, and it's a morbid song. You should look up the lyrics in Deuteronomy 32. It's great stuff. I'd read it to you, but I don't have the time. And he teaches this song to the little ones so that they'll remember because you can't get a jingle out of your head, right? And Deuteronomy 32 stuck. You just picture little Jewish kids singing about the wrath of God coming on them in the grocery store or something, and the parent going, oh, enough, right? But God did that because he knew that songs stick. And there's a teaching element of what's happening. This is why we're spending time trying to define and understand the musical culture here at Redemption now. It cannot be the environments that we were in before. We're a new church. And so that's why, as elders, we review songs. It's why we don't want to settle for songs. We want the best stuff. Think about this. Just some practical applications of this, knowing that singing teaches us. 
It gives us a reason to pay attention to a song we don't yet know, right? Which is going to be the case for a little while as we kind of get to know our bank of songs. That you're learning and being built up by the body, even that, in that moment. Maybe it helps us to pay attention to what's sung. Maybe you grab onto one phrase in a song and just think about that and mull that over and over and over in your head as you sing and delight in that. Did you know that in leading worship, we're trying to pick songs that line up with where the message is going so that it's helping the ministry of the word is helped by the singing and vice versa. Have you ever thought about your role in building up the body through singing? That you have a role in that, that singing is not just about what you like or don't like. Singing is about what other people are being taught by. That you're teaching one another. Have you ever thought about how your punctuality, let's get really practical, it, coming, uh, punctuality could be either an encouragement or a discouragement to the culture here in singing. That imagine what it would be like if we came to church a little bit early to, to maybe read the bulletin in advance, uh, look at ways you can pray, pray, look at the text that's going to be preached, pray for the people who are leading worship. Be ready to invest and engage with people when you come. What would it be like to elevate the the ministry of singing and song to the place that Paul has it in, in our church? Consider that for yourself and for your family. Number two, we sing with our hearts first and our voices second. After our time of singing earlier, you might have been paranoid listening to other people sing. You might be thinking, well, it's good that the guy next to me is singing with all his heart, and that's all. That's why one of singing. Um, but I love how there was a few modern hymn writers who, who were, people come to them all the time and say, I can't sing, I can't sing, I can't sing. And they rephrase it to say, do you mean that the sound that comes out of your mouth when you try to sing is not what you were hoping for? <laughs> I love that, right? That, that's many of us, right? Not, we're not all musical. Some of us are more mechanical that way, and they just, we don't get it, right? When you're trying to to make it all work, and it's, it's not really working all that well. When we step back, it just, I know that it's easy to recoil from singing, but think about this. The God of the universe is pleased with our singing. He inhabits the praises of his people. He delights in it. And I'm guessing it's not because of our pitch, right? He has a million angels singing to him all the time. This is not all that impressive in terms of sound waves to him, right? I hate to burst the bubble. Thank you, Kellen, for serving us well. But we're not all that great. What matters to him is that we're making melody to the Lord with all our hearts, with all of who we are. And he knows, I have that church's heart. They're adoring me. They love me. They delight in me. They see what's valuable in me. We sing with our hearts first and our voices second. We have to lose that concern for what the person around us thinks because we care most about what pleases God. We have to let that go. Sometimes we Cunningham sing loud. We don't apologize for it, but as a kid it led to some really awkward moments. Uh, One of which was I was with my grandmother in a service and my grandma was probably 90 pounds dripping wet, 
this little, you expect this like pipsqueak mouse voice out of her, and she goes to sing, and she just belts it out, and it's like a low, low, okay, like, it's just, wow, you know, you're not expecting that out of this little lady, and I remember she was belting it out, and this poor teenager made the mistake of turning around and looking at her and laughing repeatedly, and my grandma was a gracious woman, and she leaned forward to him and kindly said, Son, I'm not singing for you. <laughs> and went right back to it. It was awesome. It was the best picture. We sing for the Lord. We sing with our hearts. We are not singing to impress one another. Are you making melody to the Lord with your heart? Are you comprehensively adoring him when you come in here? Now, I know that sounds really pie in the sky and really impossible, but is that growing in you? Number three. We sing every type of song in every season. Paul is not prescribing three categories of songs that we must do. He is talking about the Psalms in the Bible and hymns and other things. But he seems to be acknowledging that there are different streams from which we need to draw. And the New Testament doesn't prescribe how this is to work, right? It's kind of left to the history and context we're in. And we need different kinds of songs for different seasons, We ought to be joyful. We ought to be reverent. We ought to have songs of repentance and lament. Songs that rehearse biblical history and capture doctrine. We should sing songs that are emotional and personal. We should sing with sincerity. We should sing about God and what He's like and what He's done, especially through Jesus Christ. And we need all of those songs to do that. Even this morning is a reminder of the different kinds of songs we need right? We're going to be facing different things in life, and so we need songs of all kinds. If we just did joyful songs, we wouldn't have resources for the times of depression. If we just sing about victory, what would we do in failure? If we sing stuffy doctrinal songs, we'll forget how to delight in God. If we only sing hymns, we'll miss our chance to speak more directly, I think, to our time. If all we do is sing modern songs, we'll disconnect ourselves from the grace and clarity God has given previous generations, and that's a mistake. We need a diversity so that the main instrument on Sunday morning, which is the congregation, can sing to the Lord. I have a word about preferences, but I'll leave that because we need to get to number four, but... Submit your preferences to the greater good. Sometimes you feel like you're on the mountaintop and you come in and we're singing songs of lament and you're thinking, what? <laughs> come on. That song's going to help you in the future and that song is likely helping others right then. And so we submit our preferences to the greater good. Lastly, we sing praise to our God. We sing praise to our God. We are commanded over 50 times in the Bible to praise him. And that might sound weird to be commanded to do something like sing. But God's commands are for our good and for his glory. And so we can say with John Newton, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty at the same time. We sing in response to his saving, don't we? That's what... God's people have always done. God delivers them in Exodus, and what do they do? They sing. God delivers them in Judges, and what do they do? They sing. 
God delivers King David and he sings the Psalms. They deliver the, through the temple building and they sing. Jesus sang hymns. His disciples sang hymns. If you listen to the book of Revelation, it's almost like a soundtrack. There's so much singing in Revelation. Let me, let me just ask you this in closing. What is the right response if the Lord were to say, answer Paul's prayer in chapter one of Ephesians? Here's what he prays for the church. Chapter 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What if God answered that prayer, yes, and he did that? And he gave us a greater understanding and a spirit of wisdom to get how rich we are in Christ. And how much he's done through Jesus and how much authority. What if God said yes to that prayer? What's the right response? Is it, thank you God for giving me the immeasurable greatness of his... It's to sing, right? I mean, there's stuff that God does that you can write it down and you can write a poem about it. You can do all this. But the only way to fully capture the delight in what God has done is to sing. And for Baptists, that might be hard. But we... (laughs) we got to get over that, right? There's really exciting stuff that's going on in this world that God is doing. And when we come and we stand there, what is that communicating? May it be our prayer that we become an expressive, joyful, delighting people as we sing. In closing our gospel connection and to the person of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.3, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what marks us. We worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our access to God, right? And if he is our access to God... And we delight in that, and we love that so much. What would it be like to enter his presence and just be satisfied to be there? What do we do with this access that we have to God through Jesus? It's like you get in the, you get in the throne room, you get in the presence of God, and what do you do there, right? We're glad we have access. That's great. That happened through Christ. But what do we do when we're there? We worship him. We have access for reasons of worshiping and delighting in God. So I'm thankful we have access, but I want us to use that access to glorify him and to make much of him. That's what the gospel has accomplished and allowed us to do. Let me pray as we seek God's help in in understanding the, the significance of singing. Gracious Father, we... We love you. We thank you. We thank you for the creativity and the genius that it was and is to to instruct your people to sing. God, it tells us a lot about what you're like, that you're, 
you're lovely and you're beautiful and you, you work on so much more than a, a purely intellectual level. God, thank you that careful living under the, in the fullness of your spirit results in singing. And God, I pray that as a church, as we come together and as we uh, learn each other's songs, as we try to figure out what, what is the, the musical culture at Redemption that's going to be the most helpful to glorify you and to, to build up the body here, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your patience and your grace as we continue to instruct one another in this way. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the power of the gospel and how, and how it gives us access to God. Help us to use that access to make much of you, to bring our whole hearts here and to sing expectantly. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would, we would live within the fullness of, of, of what it means to be in Christ as, as a church family. Father, help us this week, too, to, to minister to whatever the needs are uh, of the Abeglin family. And we continue to pray uh, for your will to be done. We ask uh, for your help and your mercy to, to take all of the experiences of this morning and to apply them to our lives in the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.